Good morning, everyone. All right, as we continue to worship through the preaching of God's Word, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. And this morning we'll be focusing on verses 1 through 17. Psalm 51, 1 through 17. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, our text this morning is likely very familiar to many of us. It is one of the most well-known of the penitential psalms, and one of the reasons for this is because its context, unlike many of the psalms, is given to us um, in the superscription. Look at the very beginning. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And we find this particular context in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So if you turn to those chapters with me um, very quickly so we can set um, our text in its context. And so what we find in these chapters is that David is the king of Israel. He's the anointed king back in 1 Samuel 16, replacing Saul. And it's the spring of the year, and it's normally where kings would go out to battle. But then immediately we see a problem where David does not keep with this tradition. Rather, he stays back. And in his idleness, he wanders out onto his balcony and he sees this woman bathing. And uh, he appreciates her beauty and he sends and inquires about her. And he finds out that this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his uh, most trusted elite soldiers. So he sends for her and brings her into his house and he commits adultery with her. And as a result of his sin, finds out that she's pregnant. And at this point, David enters in to a cover-up. He brings Uriah back from war and attempts to get him to go down um, to, to his own house to be with his wife um, and to cover up his own sin. However, Uriah will not do this, so David attempts to get him drunk, and that still won't work. And so he sends a letter to Joab, his general, to put Uriah at the very front of the fighting. And then once that, the battle gets heated, is to draw back so that Uriah would be killed. And that's exactly what happens. And so you would think for a moment, David's plan has worked. What you find in verse 27 of chapter 11 
is we see this scathing statement. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And now a year goes by, in, really in between the events of, of chapter and, um, 11 and 12. But what God does is he sends Nathan, uh, the prophet. He's, he's one of David's most trusted advisors to him. And when Nathan comes to him, he tells him a story. He tells him a parable rather than confronting him directly. And he tells him about a rich man and a poor man, where the rich man had these large flocks and the poor man had this one ewe lamb that he took care of. And when a visitor comes to the rich man's house, rather than taking from the abundance of his own flock, the rich man rather takes this ewe lamb from the poor man to give to his visitor. And David is indignant at this, right? He's kindled with anger. And he says, this man should restore fourfold what he has taken. As a matter of fact, he should die. And I can only imagine how these, these events went down. Then Nathan looks him in the eye. He says, you are the man. You are the man. And then he hands down the judgment that God had given him. And David, David is contrite before the Lord here in verse 13, he says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. But then Nathan tells him that the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. And later on, when David reflects on these events, I'm in Psalm 32, we see what he writes I'm in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But how is it that David gets from being confronted with his sin in 2 Samuel 11 by Nathan, to this exaltation of God's mercy for him. Blessed are those who are forgiven. And we find the answer in our text this morning in Psalm chapter 51. And as we look at this text, let me ask you a question. Do you have unconfessed sin in your life? Perhaps maybe um, you lack urgency or you're slack in your confession and repentance presuming on God's grace to forgive you. Perhaps you're struggling with a particular sin and this horrible thought enters your mind that maybe God will not continue to forgive me. Hear this truth from Psalm 51 this morning as we examine ourselves. God is faithful to forgive the sin of his repentant people. God is faithful to forgive the sin of his repentant people. And this morning, our plan is to trace out what that repentance looks like in four points. The first of which being call upon God in verses 1 and 2. Confess your sin in verses 3 through 6. Cleanse with blood in verses 7 through 12. And commit to obedience in verses 13 through 17. Beginning in verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God. This is where every repentant sinner begins have mercy on me, oh God. There's no other place, there's no other attribute that we can bring before God than that of his mercy when we sin. And David is specific about the mercy that he is asking of God. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now notice the word that he uses here, thoroughly. We see again in verse 9, he says, blot out all my iniquities. David doesn't want to retain even a stain of sin at all. He wants his sin entirely removed 
not just the consequences of his transgression, but sin in his inward being. He wants to be cleansed entirely. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says here. The hypocrite is content if his garments be washed, but the true supplicant cries, wash me. The careless soul is content with a nominal cleansing, but the truly awakened conscience desires a real and practical washing and that of a most complete and efficient kind. Now notice the the basis upon which David asks for God's mercy. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. And here we may think that David is being presumptuous. How can he say, have mercy on me, O God, according to anything? What does David have to plead before God? And you'd be right. He, he would be presumptuous if David were to say, have mercy on me, O God, because I'm the anointed king, because I'm the sweet psalmist of Israel, or something of that nature in and of himself. But David doesn't plead anything in himself. David pleads the character of God. Notice what he says here, steadfast love. Now that word, that's a covenant word. It refers to God's covenant faithfulness. And as David says this, his language mirrors almost exactly what God himself says to Moses when he renews the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 34. In verses 6 and 7, this is how the Lord describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is David's hope for mercy before God. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you have that same covenant promise. We find it in 1 John 1, 9, one of the greatest verses and one of the most comforting verses for the believer in all of Scripture. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in verse, uh, verse 3, we find um, how David confesses his sin, what that confession looks like as we enter into our second point, confess your sin. David says, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. In verse 3, and he's profoundly aware of the sin that he has committed because of uh, God's grace in sending Nathan. But notice what he says here. My sin is ever before me. It's always there. He can't escape it no matter what he does. And Matthew Henry creates a wonderful word picture for us to describe what that would have looked like in David's life. This is what he says. He never walked out on the roof of his house without a penitent reflection on his unhappy walk where then he saw Bathsheba. He never lay down to sleep without a sorrowful thought of his bed, of his uncleanness. Never sat down to meet, never sent his servant on an errand, or took his pen in hand, but it, but it put him in mind of his making Uriah drunk, the treacherous message he sent by him, and the fatal warrant he wrote and signed for his execution. David's sin is ever before him. He goes on to say, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, verse 4. Now, how can David say that? Because immediately when we read this story, we think, well, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. If we want to keep going there, he sinned against his own family. He sinned against the nation of Israel, the people that he was responsible to represent. So how can he say against you, you only have I sinned? But consider what Matthew Henry says about our sin being ultimately and only 
against God. God is the party wronged. It is his truth that by willful sin we deny, his conduct that we despise, his command that we disobey, his promise that we distrust, his name that we dishonor, and it is with him that we deal deceitfully and disingenuously. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and all of the others involved. But who are Bathsheba and Uriah other than those created in God's image, created to give him glory? And what command did David break in his behavior with them other than God's commands as to how we're to treat others? Our sin is against God and God alone. Notice the words that he uses in verse 4 to describe his sin. Transgressions, iniquity, sin, evil. Do we use those terms to describe our sin? Or do we attempt to use language that softens it to make it almost seem as though we're the victim of our own sin? Now consider um, what the Bible says here about all of creation bowing its knee to God. In Job 38, when God is rebuking Job for questioning his sovereignty, when he almost becomes a little sarcastic, saying, Job, where were you when I created the world? And he tells him that he sets the perimeters of the sea. And he tells the ways that you can come to this point and you can come no further and the sea obeys him. And in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 8, when the disciples and Jesus are in a boat in a raging storm and the disciples are afraid that they're going to die. And Jesus wakes and he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and they obey. And the disciples marvel and they say, who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him, and yet when God gives us a commandment, we say no and assert our own autonomy as if we have the audacity to disobey the God to whom the wind and the waves obey. Our sin is not a small thing. It's not a minimal thing. Our sin is wicked rebellion against God. And David's confession of sin here, of, of the, the heinousness of his sin, it has a particular purpose that we find at the end of verse 4. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Now remember here, the sin that David has committed, adultery and murder, under the old covenant, there was no means of forgiveness for this. Both of these sins deserve the death penalty. So to recognize the magnitude of what David is saying here, he's saying, God, even if you kill me, the judge of all the earth will be right. Here, if you're an unbeliever this morning, if you're not a Christian, recognize that for every sin that you have ever committed, you deserve to die and face the wrath of God. Do not leave here this morning apart from this truth that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today is the day of salvation. And notice what David says here about his sin. He doesn't just confess his actual sin. 
he gets to the very core of where his sin begins. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not making a comment here about the circumstances surrounding his birth or anything like that. Charles Spurgeon um, clarifies for us what David intends to say here. This is not intended to justify himself, but it is rather meant to complete the confession. It is as if he said, not only have I sinned this once, but I am in my very nature a sinner. David says next in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. This is God's delight that, that we embrace the truth and live according to that truth. But David recognizes that because of his sin nature, that that truth will not come from within himself, that it must come from outside of him, which is why he says, And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And in verse 7, it brings us to our third point. Cleanse with blood, verses 7 through 12. Now, how can God answer David's prayer for forgiveness? And we know he does because in verses 7 through 9, we see those same terms. Purge me, which corresponds with cleanse me. Wash me, blot out. And we know that God answers this prayer because he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What is the grounds of David's confidence that God will answer this prayer. I think we find it in these first words, purge me with hyssop. James Montgomery Boyce um, refers to these words as the most important and yet most misunderstood verses in Psalm 51. So he says, purge me with hyssop. Now, it would be helpful for us here to understand what exactly hyssop is. And hyssop was a hairy plant um, that, that Old Testament Israelites used in various purification rites. So if someone became ceremonially unclean due to leprosy or to contact with a dead body, um, the hyssop branch would be used to sprinkle blood or water on them in that particular ceremonial rite. But the most significant use of hyssop was in the Passover, where the hyssop branch was dipped in the blood of the lamb, and that blood was spread on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. One of the greatest foreshadowings of the blood of Christ shed for our sin in the entire Old Testament. And Hebrews 9 explains to us the significance of the hyssop branch and the way Christ fulfills these ceremonial rites. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 19, says, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
When David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, his confidence is in Christ and Christ alone, a Christ that he saw through type and shadow because the Old Testament saints are not saved in any way different than we are. His confidence is in Christ. And as one who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, who has been washed um, in the blood, he makes even more requests of God. Because remember, he says that you, do not, uh, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is not content with simply having his sin put away. Is that he wants to be cleansed at the very core of who he is. And so he makes several petitions here in verses 10 through 12. And the first thing he says is create in me a clean heart. And this word create it is exclusively used of God in the Old Testament. And where we find this word is in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So what David is asking here is for God to use the same power that he used to bring the world into existence to create in him a purity that he does not have. He goes on to say in verse 12, we'll come back to verse 11 in just a moment. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now notice here, David is not asking for the restoration of his salvation. We know that David is confident in the blood of Christ that cleanses him from all sin. So he's asking for the restoration of the joy of his salvation. Because in this previous year, David has been devoid of joy entirely. Notice what he says in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, some commentators will take that to, to mean a, a, a figurative or a metaphorical type of broken as in reference to his spirit. Rather, I don't think that's the case. In, in addition to a brokenness of spirit that he has, that David, in, in the conviction of his sin and walking in impenitence, experienced real visceral pain as a result of that. And, and that's confirmed for us in Psalm 32, another psalm that he wrote out of this particular situation. In verses 3 and 4, listen to what David says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up, and by the heat as by the heat of summer. David's pain was real. Sin destroys not only our inward being, but every aspect of our being. And David, and God, David asked God to restore the joy that he once had. Let's go back here for just a moment to verse 11, where David makes somewhat of a peculiar statement. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, what does David mean here, take not your Holy Spirit? Is he suggesting that those Christians who are indwelt and sealed by the Spirit can actually lose it? Now, the New Testament witness would tell us no, that the Holy Spirit indwells us permanently, that he seals us for the day of redemption, serves as our down payment for that day. So what is David saying here? Now, this, this Hebrew phrase that's translated Holy Spirit in Psalm 51 it only occurs twice in the entire Old Testament, here in Psalm six, or Isaiah 63. And so it can be translated multiple ways depending on its context. And so translators of the Bible have to make an interpretive call here. 
And faithful Bible translations, such as the English Standard Version, which is the version that I use, will render that as Holy Spirit in capital letters, as a reference to the third person of the Trinity. However, I think the King James Version actually renders this correctly when it uses lowercase letters. Because you see, it is not referring to the third person of the Trinity. That's not what David is referring to here. He's referring to the spirit of holiness that God has worked in him that keeps him in fellowship and communion with God. And and part of the reason that, that I think that is based on its context. Remember, verses 10 through 12, David is talking about inward renewal. He wants to be transformed in his inward being. That's why he says, create in me a clean heart and restore joy. Uphold me with a willing spirit. He's referring to his inner being. And all throughout the psalm, he makes triple parallel statements. So he'll, he'll use several different words to refer to one main idea. Look at verse, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, blot out, wash, cleanse. All is a reference to forgiveness. Transgression, iniquity, sin. All is a reference um, to his sin. So when he says here at the end of each of these petitions, renew a right spirit, take not your Holy Spirit, uphold me with a willing spirit. Verses 10 and 12 clearly refer to the spirit within David that God has worked. A, A steadfast, faithful spirit and a willing spirit to walk in God's ways. And verse 11 is no different, right? It's a spirit of holiness that God has worked within David. Scholar Creighton Marlowe says it this way. He summarizes what David is saying here. David is saying it seems as most consistent with his flow of thought that he desires the restoration of fellowship with God, which is based on his return and not God's. He wants to return to a lifestyle of holiness inwardly as a result and as a result outwardly, which will please God and enhance communion with him. David knows this is only possible with God's enablement. Therefore, he's not vowed to do better in his own strength, but throughout the psalm, hungers for and in fact almost demands God's help. So as David makes these petitions, he he wants a restoration of what he experienced previously. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. David knows what it is to be impure and to walk in impenitence. And he wants God to renew in him a faithful spirit that walks in that purity that God grants him. In verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. When we walk in sin, it destroys our sense of fellowship and our sense of communion with God. Cast me not away from your presence. David doesn't want to be separated from the fellowship with God. And take not the spirit of holiness from me that keeps me in fellowship and communion with you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Sustain me with a spirit that works out of and is willing to serve you in obedience out of the joy that you have given me. Which brings us to our fourth point in verse 13. Commit to obedience. Look at the things that David says that he's going to do as a result. Notice I said here, as a result. That's why he begins verse 13 with then. Only after you have cleansed me with the blood of Christ, only after you have renewed my inner being, then I will do these things in the obedience of faith. That's why he says in verse 14, deliver me and then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and then my mouth will declare your praise. He says, then I will teach 
transgressors your ways. David knows what it is to be a transgressor. And out of that experience of conviction and repentance and a renewed obedience, David teaches others. And I think by way of application here, we need to recognize the importance of what David is saying here. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Why? And sinners will return to you. Our continued repentance and restoration uh, to fellowship with God and to obedience to God is a means that God uses to bring others to repentance. This was true of David. David walked in impenitence for a year, and it was only when God sent Nathan to rebuke him and say, you are the man, was David restored in a spirit of repentance to fellowship and communion with God. This is the responsibility of each and every Christian. Don't neglect or reject the ministry of Nathan in your life. You see, Galatians 6, 1 and 2 tells us, Brothers, if any of you is caught in any transgression, let you who are spiritual restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is my responsibility to you. This is your responsibility to me as those who are in covenant with one another. This is what we do. God uses our teaching and our repentance to bring others to repentance as we teach out of that. And notice one of the things he says here. He says, I will sing. But what does he say he's going to sing of? He says, I'll sing of your righteousness. Now, reading through Psalm 51, that's not what you would expect him to say because he hasn't mentioned righteousness at any point in this passage so far. You would expect him to say, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your mercy, of your grace, of your forgiveness, your love. Righteousness is not necessarily the first thing that you would think of in reading this verse. So why does David say this? Why does he focus on singing of God's righteousness? If we go back to Psalm 32, when David says, blessed are those who are forgiven, if we see the way that that verse is used in the New Testament, I think we'll find our answer. Because in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul appropriates Psalm 32 when he puts forth David as an example of someone who is justified by faith alone. In Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 5, this is what Paul says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God, whom, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so the reason that David sings of righteousness here it's because God's righteousness is no longer a burden to him. As one who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, who is justified by faith alone, God's righteousness is a blessing. This is one of the greatest blessings of being in union with Christ is that we are clothed in his righteousness. And David sings aloud of that righteousness. And of all the things that David commits to do here, to teach to sing, to declare, to sacrifice. 
there's a particular manner in which these things are to be done. And we, because we're told in verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And so these acts of obedience in and of themselves are not necessarily marks of genuine repentance. So what is the manner in which these things are to be done? What type of heart is this to arise out of? We're told in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Apart from a broken and contrite heart, David's teaching, his singing, his declaring, his sacrificing, it is absolutely worthless. It is a broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. And out of that broken and contrite heart, God does delight in right sacrifices, as we're told later in verse 19. Now, the Apostle Paul picks up on this language of, of brokenness and contrition um, in 2 Corinthians 7 when he talks about godly sorrow. He says that godly sorrow um, leads to repentance without regret, but worldly sorrow leads to death. Listen to what John Owen, um, in his book, Gospel Evidences of Saving Faith, says about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is the very life and soul of repentance. The Apostle Paul teaches this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. This passage encompasses all that Scripture says about a broken heart and a contrite spirit. David exemplifies this, and his example is so frequently repeated, we need no other illustration. So how can we put David's um, example of brokenness and contrition and what his repentance looks like? How can we put that into practice in our own lives. I think one way we can do that is to pray Psalm 51 individually. As you discipline yourself to, to confess and repent of your sin, use Psalm 51 as a model for how to do that. And I think as you do that, what you'll find is that your repentance is in step with the gospel. The gospel is always before your mind. Notice the, the, the structure that Psalm 51 takes. The beginning, he exalts the character of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your abundant mercy, according to your steadfast love. And because of his high view of God, it leads him into a deep, deep confession of sin, his actual sin and his original sin. David is confident in God's forgiveness. He takes his sin seriously, but he is confident in God's forgiveness because it is secured in the blood of Christ. And God's promises cannot be shaken. And from that, David doesn't just ask for forgiveness. He asks for complete and inward renewal. And as a result, he commits to renewed obedience before God. It follows the pattern of the gospel. Another way we can apply this is to sing Psalm 51 corporately. Notice what the superscription says, to the choir master. As we read this, it may seem simply like a private prayer. But David wrote this to be intended to be sung in worship. Because as we sing these truths, we encourage one another with the reality that God is faithful to forgive those who are his that are repentant. As we close this morning, we're going to close with a prayer from the Valley of Vision called Continual Repentance. So apply this prayer to your own soul as we pray. 
O God of grace, you have imputed my sin to my substitute and have imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, adorning me with a jewel of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I'm still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the spirit is tinged with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments and by grace am always receiving change of raiment. For you always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and you are always bringing forth the best robe. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. Amen.